This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Private interests are increasingly becoming commonplace inside education. In today's economic globalization, the attainment of knowledge is seen as a key difference between economies that succeed and economies that stagnate or fail. We call this the knowledge economy, and it is one of the main reasons why private interests have entered education systems. Private interests in education range from private schools and private textbook and examination companies to the emerging belief that education is an individual, positional good that can be purchased, and to the financialization of education where companies buy and sell student debt. It also includes such things as evidence-based policymaking and information technology. Our guest today, Professor Gita Steiner-Kampsi, sees herself as a second-generation researcher of educational privatization. Whereas the first generation of scholars aimed at describing the phenomenon, Professor Steiner-Kampsi attempts to explain or theorize it. How can we explain the rise of a global education industry? Gita Steiner-Kampsi is a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University in New York City. She is co-editor of the newest World Yearbook of Education, which focuses on the global education industry. The volume was co-edited with Tony Berger and Chris Lubienski, and is the focus of today's show. Gita Steiner-Kampsi, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for inviting me. Look forward to this conversation. You've recently co-edited the World Yearbook of Education 2016, uh, focused on the global education industry. Uh, And you've edited this with Tony Berger and Chris Lubienski. And Chris has actually been on this show um, earlier. Um, Private interests are increasingly becoming commonplace inside education. Um, You call this the global education industry. What do you mean by this? What is the global education industry? Maybe I should start out by saying a little bit about the book, about the two co-editors that are not present right here. We all come from different directions. Uh, Tony Verger, who who has worked extensively on the global education industry, but also global education policy in an international context. He is like the first editor, and he pulled that um, volume together, and he brought on board Chris Lubinsky, who has done incredible work, especially on on choice and on dom- uh, domestic U.S. education policy, showing especially how Gates Foundation was supporting and has become like a backstage advisor and a policy actor in domestic reform. So both of them really come from, the, from solid previous analysis on the private sector. I come more from globalization studies, and my interest is more what impact private sector has on public education. So we all wonderfully complemented each other, and we are very happy that we found an incredible, strong group of scholars contributing to this edited volume. This is so much about you know, the book, but let me come back to your question and say what the definition is the, on the global education industry. 
I should use the definition that Tony used at the CIS conference, and the definition is processes, systems of rules, social forces, and social relations that are involved in the production of a broad range of educational services on the for-profit basis within a global economy. There are basically three elements that stand out. One is it has to do with educational services. This can be anything from textbook development to consultancies to provision of schools. It has to be a for-profit basis. And I think, Will, we should talk about that more because nowadays we have interesting combinations of PPPs that don't look like they are for profit, but they are. And a PPP and final... is a public-private partnership. That's right. Okay. And the, f the whole definition of for-profit basis, this has changed in these, you know, recently. So we, should, we will talk about it, I'm sure. And the last one, under the condition of a global economy, which also means these are providers that provide across national boundaries. So these three things, I stick with Tony's definition. I like that definition. It involves educational services. It has to be for profit, and it has to be more than just in one country. That's the definition of a global education industry. Right. And so this industry is um, expanding, or like how big is this industry? I mean, the, the most... You know, a lot of colleagues also at the last conference of CIS, they are, we are just amazed how it is expanding. And there are a lot of figures out there. And in the presentation that uh, Tony Berger and I did, he he is uh, quoting the, the company GVA Advisors. They are based in uh, California. And they're an education industry. And one could say that they have an interest to... Uh, exaggerate the success of uh, how big the industry is, but there are so many figures convincingly arguing that it is a huge industry and getting bigger and bigger. For instance, GVA advisors, they say globally in 2015, the industry consists of $4.9 trillion, but then by the year 2020, they project $6.3 trillion. I don't even know how to pronounce that. It's like so much. And, and, and in the US, similarly, uh, there's the figure of about $6 billion in 1999 and $125 billion, more than double, 12 years later in 2011. And the interesting part is it used to be that the private sector was very much involved in post-secondary education and pre-K, like early childhood education. But the interesting phenomenon is now that it's moving into, in America, in the U.S., we would say K to 12, or to say it differently, it's moving into elementary and lower secondary education also. And this is really a new phenomenon. And so what sort of goods and services are being sold? So, you know, when I think of uh, for-profit universities or for-profit schools in the United States, the one that always comes to mind is the University of Phoenix. And I think they mm -hmm, make, mm -hmm. a, they're in the news quite a bit for their, mm -hmm, for their mm -hmm. low quality and sometimes shady practices. Um, right. But in my mind, University of Phoenix, or at least to what I understand, they are... Mm -hmm. Um, 
based only in the U.S. and not cross-national. So would they not mm-hmm. be part of the global education industry? University of Phoenix, they nowadays higher education is boundaryless, and ICT is one of the early private sector providers mm. of the global education industry because with technology it's becoming clear that it's boundaryless. So distance education, I would say, by definition, is already part of the global education industry if it is for profit. Um, what we find is the provision of schooling, like private schools, and here there are like two different types of schools that are really interesting. One is the traditional private schools for rich families, for elites. One could argue it started in colonial times, uh, the whole idea of boarding schools eventually, but then eventually just also uh, day schools. This is something very old, and it always existed side by side to public education. Nowadays, this has also increased massively through organizations such as IB, International Baccalaureate. IB is uh, collaborating with education industries. For instance, in Switzerland, the country I was raised, IB there just opened uh, GEM School, which is a private sector provider with a basis in Dubai. Just opened a school in Switzerland where they they offer IB, uh, the International Baccalaureate, in their school. So what you have is the interest of governments, but also the private sector, to have international accreditation of secondary schools. So this is one direction because the idea is they would enter the higher education system more easily. That's the promise that they're making. And on the other hand, you have the other spectrum, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the low fee private schools that is also increasing. And the low fee private schools, the leader in that field, I would say, is PALF nowadays, Pearson Affordable Learning Fund. They invest into companies such as Bridge, Omega, I think up to 10 companies right now that offer low-fee private schools in Pakistan, in in South Asia, but also in different West African and East African countries. So, So this is the second one. The first one was ICT. The second is provision of schooling, but also, Will, your own research topic, private, you know, tutoring is huge. It's huge all over the world, and I think, uh, you know, what Mark Bray, what you do, what uh, Yvette Silva has written on that topic, they're like the classics in the field, just even bringing to the attention that this has become a big part of education and has created a lot of problem for the education sector is really important to acknowledge. But then you also have uh, what Helen Gunther, she's one of the authors of in the book calls consultocracy. <laughs> all the consultancy firms like Booz, McKinsey, Deloitte, all these consultancy firms that help governments develop an education sector strategy, do education sector review, things that usually development agencies used to do or academics or researchers 
they do it in the name of the government and very often they have this agreement that they are invisible. Like they do it for the government in the name of the government because there's this whole you know, discourse that we have in development on ownership. Um, then the whole, what we, I would call everything that deals with school reform from textbook publishing to um, test development to teacher training to uh, monitoring and evaluation. And I find that especially interesting. Um, Pearson is very active there, but also Cambridge Education and others. I find that interesting because it's like a closed system. And for me, that epitomizes how businesses work. They have like a, almost like a service contract with the education sector, and it's enormously lucrative. And I tried in my own research trying to understand why testing companies are so successful and why they are expanding in education and what it does to public education. So, and it, it seems as if the, you could have a public school in name mm -hmm. and you could have a public school building and children say they go to the public school X, Y, and Z. But in mm -hmm. effect, all of the services being offered inside of that school are offered by for-profit companies. That's right, and that's a new, it's, one could say the ground was laid maybe 20 years ago with the back to basic movement in the US and many countries where governments said, we only offer what is necessary and everything else has to be on a fee basis. And it, in many countries this led to a focus on you know, language and literacy and you know, the basic subjects and anything that was music or arts or, or chess or sports was all outsourced or was after school program. And the, the idea of having a fee structure is something that comes from the business sector. And the epitome of the fee structure you find in, 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 in one of the chapters of the book is about the GEMS school which is, as I mentioned earlier, they have one school now in Switzerland, but they are uh, basically, they're based in uh, Dubai. And um, the CEO of Games openly says that we are following the model of the airline. We offer economy class, business class, and first class, depending on what parents have to offer. So if if parents only subscribe for the basic education, they have different kind of teachers. For instance, they don't have native English speakers. They have Indians and Pakistanis as teachers, or they don't have access to uh, physical PE or sport facilities. Or, and, and, and the opposite is for first class education. They have access to native English speakers and, uh, and have just a, richer curriculum. So the idea that you have a fee structure existed in public schooling, but now it, is, it has taken on a level that is unbelievable. And it's uh, amazing to watch how this has developed. So what you have now in public schools, schools where the basic is offered and for everything else, parents have to pay. And even in countries such as Switzerland, we have now one school that is a, we call it gymnasium. They have the regular curriculum, but if students or parents wish to have 
a, an additional accreditation for international baccalaureate, they have to pay, or rather the school picks up the cost for that uh, thing. And IB, even though I totally believe in what they do, it's totally interesting, their curriculum, it is like all other business products, it is a closed system. You cannot just buy a curriculum. And they, of course, they speak the language of education. They always give educational reasons, like quality reasons. You have to buy everything. You have to train the teachers to teach it. You have to use the textbooks. You have to have uh, all this kind of quality assurance. And they argue that it's in the name of quality assurance because it's a trademark and they don't want to you know, water down the product that they are selling. But it is very expensive, you know. So this is what I mean with the closed system. Pearson functions the same way. Cambridge Education, IB, they have business model and they have fee structures. They have, it's, I would call it, they have almost like a service contract. You cannot just buy one element. You have to buy the whole thing and you have a commitment over years and um, it ends up being expensive because it is a closed system that once you buy the test, you have to buy everything else that goes with it. So it's a slippery slope of, of additional services. It creates a dependency, you know. It, it does create a dependency. And, you know, now seeing how business operates in education, one has to ask, I mean, why didn't they enter it earlier? It's so lucrative because we are in a knowledge society. We believe in lifelong learning. We have 12 years customers staying in the same pipeline. It's amazing. I mean, of course it is lucrative. Education and health, I would say, are the most lucrative sectors because everyone is exposed to it. So why did it take so long? Why did it take over two well, that's a good. That's a really good question. I think... Something happened, like I'm, I'm coming from systems theory, Nicholas Luhmann, systems theory. Okay. Something has changed in the public education sector that allowed the private sector coming, and we should be analyzing this. And one of the arguments that I made that this standards-based education reform that we have, the outcomes, outcomes orientation, allowed... And uh, together with international testing, such and pearls and what have you, especially PISA, because PISA is not measuring national outcomes, but it is a global set of 21st century skills. This makes it very interesting for business to enter education sector because you can develop the same kind of test, not for one this, not for one school, not for one district, not for one country, but for many. Because PISA measures 21st century skills and not national curriculum. And it opens up a market that is huge. It's, I mean, beyond imagination how big that market is. It just needs some local adaptation uh, done. Once you believe that what students should learn is not the national curriculum, but a socially agreed 21st century skills, then you can, you can be a global education industry by working transnationally. So that standards-based education reform, and I published an article on that that was you know, read a lot in the journal Globalization, Societies and Education, opened up the 
ground for businesses to enter. This standards-based education reform. Mm. And then it just evolved from there, and, yeah. and it's now, yeah. it seems as if it's pretty much out of hand yes. now. It's, uh, it's uh, everything and anything can right. go. I mean, others such <clears throat> as Stephen Ball or Susan Robertson and Tony Verger, they early on, they analyzed, and Jenny Osk, I could, you know, name others, they, um, they say, which is true, the neoliberal reform environment, or uh, Stephen Ball's calls it uh, endemic privatization was also a condition. The fact that parents have a choice, that governments are ready to pay vouchers, um, the fact that you know schools results um, are made public, that there is monitoring, that the state stops to be the only provider but is only a regulator, all these are reasons why, together with standards-based reform, why it became interesting. Because PPP is not really a partnership. It means the public sector giving money to the private sector. It's, it's a one-way street, even though we call it PPP. But this whole neoliberal reform that you allow choice, you create competition, and uh, schools get per capita financing money from the government, or vouchers we could call it, the, this is all a condition for businesses to entering the public, public school market, making it interesting to them. So, and, so this, brings, this brings up the, 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 the impact of privatization or the global education industry on public, right, the public sector, right. on, on the government, right, right. where it's not necessarily a partnership where they are, um, where public actors are working in conjunction with the private sector, right. but rather it's just simply a, um, a mechanism. The public becomes a mechanism through which the funding can be channeled to the private exactly. sector. Exactly, exactly. And what we have, uh, I think we are now at a really interesting stage in research on the private sector. Um, and that's where I become interested. The early uh, research, that we were just... People were just, you know, scholars who wrote about it. I would call them the first-generation private sector researchers, such as my colleagues, Chris Lubinsky and Tony Berger and Stephen Ball. They were like the... Uh, Susan Robertson. They were the first-generation analysts that basically just described the phenomenon. And, mm. you know, why did they enter? Why did they become so successful? I consider myself a second-generation <laughs> researcher in that field. I came along more from policy borrowing research and I always try to understand the system logic. And in this case, I think we have to have a paradigm shift in education research for the longest time. I don't know if you know the book by James Scott. It's called Seeing Like a State. I just love that title and I love that <laughs> ethnography, what he did with it. But, you know, all the, a lot of critical studies in education research was all about governmentality like using Foucauldian or Bourdieu to analyze how bureaucracy and government imposed or used education to basically create docile citizens. And, right. right. This was like, for the longest time, that's what critical studies in education meant and how it would reproduce the class system. And But 
in a language of meritocracy to make people feel bad and make it uh, so they take individual responsibility if they do not succeed in life. It was so a lot of research was about demystifying this whole meritocracy belief and show how stratification and education is interlinked. But I think what we should be doing now with the entry, with the advance of the global education industry, we should start to not see like a state, trying to understand how the state sees education and appropriates education as a means to reproduce inequality. But we should start, and I like that term, that's why I'm creating that term, counting <laughs> like a business. We should count like a business and try to understand what is the logic, business logic, that comes from the private sector now into the public sector. Because in system theory, we say all these subsystems, the private sector, public uh, sector, or education and health and decon, these are all subsectors. They interact. So if something happens in their interaction, it, and what happens is that both sides take on system thinking or beliefs or values that are important in the other sector. For instance, now the private sector, as I said, they speak the language of education now. They talk about quality assurance. They, call, they talk about, especially like when it comes in, in um, low-fee private schools, they talk about how important it is to have access to education. They talk about the importance of uh, the right to education. Uh, so they have all the language and the semantics that we have in education. The same happens now, vice versa. And of course, you know, other colleagues also here at Teachers College, Jeff Hennig talks about marketization in education. But what it really means from a systems theory perspective is that the public sector takes on not only mechanisms like, you know, demand supply driven, competitive, competition driven, mm. and, you know, choice that is endemic for the market and the private sector, but also beliefs and, and uh, mechanisms and ways of seeing it, such as the fee structure, the fact that we have a fee structure now in public education is crazy. And it comes from the private sector. It's like, like, like uh, it is like registering for Dropbox or for any service. Anyone, everyone gets it for free, the basic, but for everything else you have to pay. Right, and, you can be a premium subscriber. Yes, exactly. or a, and this yeah. is what we now have in public education. And this is something that is also, has it, it, it makes it interesting for the business to come in. They say the public sector should just give the basics and for everything else, the private sector can be contracted. And the next step is to say that for students that cannot afford these extra services, the government should give scholarships or vouchers or what have you. Right. So how else do we need to learn how to count like a business? Um, like, what does that mean for educational researchers going forward? Okay. There's something I think we can learn positively. Um, the way we should be asking why is 
the private sector interesting for governments? I work in developing countries, so let me talk about developing countries. In developing countries, we have the situation where the donors all pull in different directions. Right now, for instance, I'm working in a curriculum reform project in um, Kyrgyzstan, funded by the Asian Development Bank. It really is a problem. Before that, in Mongolia, I work in Central Asia. It really is a problem that, first of all, many, many reforms that are donor-funded are high cost. They are not replicable. And the reason is because USAID, World Bank, Asian Development Bank, UNICEF, it could be anyone, even Soros Foundation, who I love and work a lot with, they, are all, they have all their accountability systems, and they want to have successful projects, well implemented, they pay a lot of money to international consultants to come to have like showcase projects, which even though well intended, it makes them not replicable. So what we end up having, all these donor-funded projects, including in curriculum reform, are never scaled up. They're just very nice pilot projects that end the moment the project ends. Business works differently. Business works differently. They Oh, and then the other thing I wanted to say. So first of all, they are not scalable because they are too expensive. The second feature of donor-funded projects are that they are not coherent because, you know, in one country you have the World Bank revising the textbooks, another donor focusing on teacher training, and another one yet on student assessment. So you end up with and all of them should be <laughs> coherent because students are supposed to be tested on what the teachers were prepared to teach and what the textbooks say, but they are not. And everyone knows that working in developing countries. So businesses are different. They have like a monopoly. And they have a, you know, they go to the government, like in Mongolia, they say, Cambridge education, if you want us to build those bilingual education schools in Mongolia, you have to buy the whole package. You can't just buy the test. You have to buy our teacher training. You have to buy our textbooks. You have to have our everything. Um, and that accounts for the coherence of the mm. reform. And uh, it is a totally different approach. So I think what, what we could learn from developing in developing context is we should just, just stop doing these very expensive pilot projects that are not scaled up. And right. I think there is some lesson to be learned, actually, from how businesses operate in developing countries. This whole idea of having low-cost reform, they have it for a different motivation. But um, I think some things we, we could be learning or having more coherent reform where all the elements of a reform are uh, in sync with each other. Yeah, I mean, as a government, that would be quite attractive if you have a, the development partners mm -hmm. having all sorts of incoherence yeah. and then a company coming in and saying, just go with yeah. us and we will yeah. have it coherent from right. teacher training to assessment. Right. And, you, uh, you know, know, you don't have to worry. I like the question that Tony always asks. And, you know, we, we both do globalization studies, but I just say the way he posed that question, I just like it so much that I quote, I, you know, cite him. He always asks, why, 
why I say why do why does a global education policy resonate? He says he says it even more straightforward, and he puts agency in the question, and he says. Why do governments buy or buy into a reform? That's a good question because there is agency. You know, governments have a choice to hire businesses or not hire businesses. Mm. And I think we have to ask this question seriously. Why do they buy into? I mean, one could say there's a you know kickback, and probably there is some kickback in some countries. They get some money. They make good deals with them, and maybe they have a profit. But you know, beyond that cynical approach. I think there are some really attractive features of the global education industry that, what, as I said, we have to have a paradigm shift and try to understand how do businesses see education and how do they sell it to education, trying to understand why it resonates with governments. This is the second generation kind of question, what I mean. The first one is to just describe and analyze mm. the incredible boom of private sector involvement. The second one is to ask, why is it happening? What is in the public sector? And how do they sell the product? Why does it resonate? Why do governments buy into it? And in order to do that, we have to think like a business. And one interesting, if you don't mind just adding that I add this sure. point. One of the authors uh, uh, in the book, and she's right now a visiting scholar at Teachers College, Columbia University, is Eva Hartmann. She's a professor at the Copenhagen Business School. She looks at the transnational private actors uh, who do credentialization. Who, um, and this is big in the ICT business, but also vocational, post-secondary education. Nowadays, you know, similar like we have IB in secondary school, or we have in the university system, we have branch campuses, and we have universities that work transnationally. It is interesting in a day of a global economy that transnational certification has a greater value than national certification. And she writes about that, about especially in the area of vocational technical education that this is like a brand name to have transnational private certification. And the way they work, you don't even need a government. You just need a professional association. We always thought that the government is the sine qua non in education, and either it's government or intergovernment, you know, trans, you know, intergovernmental organization, but the, like the UN, the UN or the World Bank or OECD. But now we are <clears throat> moving into private transnational accreditation. They just get together as a professional association and they're private providers and they, uh, they accredit degrees and these make, they put money in the public relation, they make them known, they have, uh, a whole set of qualification and quality assurance criteria, and they run with it, and governments buy it, and private customers also buy it. And this is a really new phenomenon. And in the literature, they talk about network governance, and all this is at, also at CIS. There were a couple of really interesting uh, presentations mm. on the topic. This is also a new phenomenon that you can deal and provide education with no government involved especially at the post-secondary level, no government involved, and people pay for it. 
you can have governments pay for it, but even in a in a in a time of knowledge society and lifelong learning, even the private customer would you know go for it. Mm. Well, Gita Steiner Comsey, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you, Will. Gita Steiner Comsey is a professor at Teachers College, Columbia University. Her latest co-edited volume with Tony Berger and Chris Lubienski is entitled The World Yearbook of Education, The Global Education Industry. Next week, I speak with Robin Shields about social network analysis. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.